Sometimes it feels like a book has to pick between epic, flashy adventure and exploring deeply human themes. And then a book comes along that just blows all your expectations away. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Lyndon A. Lewis. Their debut novel is The First Sister, an ambitious space opera from Skybound Books, and it's available for purchase as of today. Lyndon and I talk about the time they ended up as an extra on The Walking Dead, consulting an astrophysicist on fictional science, and how the Me Too movement influenced The First Sister. Let's jump right in, shall we? Lyndon Lewis, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. I'm so happy you were able to come on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Travis. Yeah, well, uh, I know you're in Madrid now, but as I was doing some research for this interview, I saw that you actually lived in Atlanta for a decade or so. So I've been yeah. living here about four years now. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you, you're still getting used to the heat and the cold uh, as it comes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is that. It's always fun. And the traffic. Uh, I think oh, I finally God. adjusted by the time we had to go into lockdown. So whenever things start opening up again, that'll be a new process. Yeah. Yeah. The, I don't miss the traffic. Uh, and I didn't even realize how stressful it was to be driving two hours a day until I moved to Madrid and we just walk everywhere. And I, I, I realized like I didn't have as much pain in my jaw. And I was like, what? How did this happen? What is this? Did something magical happen? And it, it was like lack of car stress. Yeah. The, the baseline for like a bad driver shifts as soon as you live in Atlanta. Everyone around you. Yeah. As soon as it's like a cloudy sky, everyone forgets how to drive their car and just runs into the back of other people. Yep. Uh, well, I guess I probably should have realized the whole Atlanta thing from your bio, because uh, you say you appeared in an episode of The Walking Dead. Uh, yeah, so how did. did that happen? So I was working at Netherworld Haunted House, which is, um, I, I don't know, how, since you've been in Atlanta, maybe you've heard of it around Halloween. It's kind of a, a big haunt that's been in Atlanta for longer than I have. And they called, the, the Walking Dead production called up the guy who owned the haunted house and was like, hey, we're looking for zombie actors. Do you happen to know any zombie actors? <laughs> and Ben, who is the guy who owns Netherworld Haunted House, was like, yeah, we have plenty of people who work seasonal. I'll just try and like get a hold of them because, you know, it's June. So we really don't see them until October-ish, you know, or a little early in that August. And so he just kind of put out a call to everybody of, hey, we got this production looking for zombies. They want you to go through like a zombie school, but they're paying. So, and of course, everybody was like, oh, that's the magic word. <laughs> yeah. so, so we we all kind of, almost everybody I knew reached out like, yes, please give me summer work because, you know, being a, a we were all mostly college kids at that point. Uh, we needed gigs, gig money. And uh, we went through this kind of zombie school training camp. There are videos of it online of like, you know, they set up this obstacle course for us to zombie stumble through and to see. That how, is amazing. Yeah. And to kind of teach <laughs> us like, no, zombies don't walk sexy. You need to like, <laughs> you need to like really shamble like your, your, you know, bones are hurting. I'm like, dude, it's 4 a.m. I don't have to method act like this. <laughs> I feel like shit. So this is this is exactly where I need to be. Um, and from there, they kind of 
talk to us about what we wanted to do on the show and if we could get on the show. And I had, uh, I was on episode one. They had basically everybody come in for episode one. And we had like three waves of people. There was like A rank and B rank and C rank. And A rank was like super close to the camera. They had all these prosthetics on. B rank had like minor makeup. And then C rank like had masks. And I was like in C rank all the way in the back. (laughs) And it was like 103 degrees in Atlanta. And I have like, you know, The Walking Dead supposedly starts like right after winter. So we're all wearing like super long sleeves and jackets and masks and like people are dying of a heat stroke. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, it was pretty brutal, but it was it was fun. We got to like stand on tanks and there was a Marta bus on fire. And I was like, is this this just a normal Tuesday? Yeah, Um, that's kind of (laughs) cathartic. Yeah. So the streets, they they had it set up in uh, what was Georgia State. Uh, university close to back then, I think it was their foreign language department. I don't know if they still have it as that now, but they had the streets closed off since it was summer and they recorded over there. And then the second episode, which they recorded, I don't know, maybe a week to a few days after the first one. Then I was, uh, they pulled me for a rank and I'm not even, I don't even know how the, they choose. They just kind of it seems very willy nilly when it comes to extras. They're just like, Hey, you come here. And you just happen to be standing in the right place at the right time. So, you know, I was the, Hey, you at the time. And they were like, can you wear contacts? Yeah, I can wear contacts. We'll shove these giant contacts in your eyes and we're going to put you near the camera. And I don't wear contacts on a normal basis. And I certainly don't wear contacts the size of my entire eyeball. Oh man. So the makeup guy was like, Oh, come here. It's fine. I got you. And he just like shoved his fingers in my eyes. (laughs) They're in. And I was like, yeah, they're definitely in. I don't think they're ever coming out. But after that, I got to do this really cool scene with Andrew Lincoln and Steve Young, uh, where I like got to walk up to them and like, they were covered in zombie blood and gore. This one zombie's like, you're not a zombie. And Steve Young goes, uh, like pretending to be a zombie. And then me, the the zombie that was like, wait a minute, was like, oh yeah, that was a good zombie growl. Totally legit. <laughs> I just like, keep, keep going. <laughs> but I, I think the funniest part of the instructions were like, now come up to him and look at him, but don't make a sound because like there are ranks of people who get paid. And if you make a sound, we'll have to pay you more money and we don't want to do that. So like my voice is totally like dubbed over to sound like way more feminine zombie than I think my normal voice sounds. Uh, but it was, it was pretty funny. It was a fun scene to record and uh, it was pretty fun being on set. Yeah, that, that sounds incredible. And everything you're saying makes sense to me now that I'm actually thinking about it. But none of that is how I imagine the process would work. Yeah, background work is, is really bizarre because I've also done background work on um spider-man um it was the it's the one with the newest the newest spider-man kid whose name i just blanked on uh tom holland yeah tom holland when he was doing a few spider-man shots it was like his extra and we just had to like walk in the street below him while he like moodily eats a sandwich or something on a donkey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, i did some extra work for that and then i also was like behind a few other people in Captain America Civil War, like 
they just told me to like run like I'm dying. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'm running. So it's just me running in various outfits behind people fighting. <laughs> you can catch like blurry glimpses of me and that's about it. But yeah, it's, it's mostly like standing in the right place at the right time, I guess. That, that sounds like so much fun. And uh, so I see, I, I don't know if this is related whatsoever, but I saw from your Instagram that it looks like you're also into cosplay and maybe some LARPing. Oh yeah, definitely. Both of those. Uh, I got more into LARPing when I moved over to Europe. I had done a lot more tabletop role-playing and uh, running games that way. And when I moved over here, my partner and a bunch of their friends were all into the tabletop, but also the LARP community. And I kind of tagged along and, and got super addicted. So <laughs> now I, uh, I I think it's fun because you can kind of make your costumes. It's like an extension of cosplay with acting. And I also think it's it's intriguing for me to... I've gotten more into playing bad characters most recently. Of course, before the quarantine, I would just kind of sign up and be like, let me be the worst character I could possibly be because I could find a lot of motivation in books to be like, all right, this is this is how you really psychologically mess with someone uh, while also thinking that you're doing an okay thing. Yeah, it's all research, right? Yeah, it's just research to be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, uh, I guess looking back, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Um, I have always loved science fiction and fantasy since I was a kid. And my parents would kind of drop me at the library during the summer, like, oh, we got to go work, but you can stay at the library for a few hours. And the librarians kind of like knew me like, oh, yeah, she's going to get dropped off and she'll chill here. And you just let her read whatever she wants to read. And half the time it was like, oh, these books seem like too young for me. So the librarians always were giving me like books that might be considered like too old for like a reading age or whatever. But I just kind of was constantly reading anything I could get my hands on. And I think it just went from there. Like I used to love the Dragon Rider series and I still love Tamara Pierce so much. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, I, I feel like they just kind of dragged me into this world of like, I want to, you know, play knights and I want to play with dragons. And, my, and I just kind of came up with these fantasy worlds while I was at home uh, and playing with my younger brother. And we told all these wonderful stories running around in the woods behind our house. <laughs> Yeah, so the LARPing thing kind of stretches way back. Oh, yeah. I feel like LARPing, um, if I could have told my childhood self, like, guess what? You're going to still be doing the same thing <laughs> in 30 years. My, my childhood self would have been like, sweet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess from uh, like falling in love with the genre and like telling your own stories, how did you go from that to deciding to become a writer? Uh, there was a period where all I kind of did was uh, role play online. Uh, I, I went to like a very small school and I didn't grow up in Atlanta. I moved to Atlanta for college. Uh, and I am from a very tiny town called Rockmart, Georgia, which is probably an hour and a half outside of Atlanta. And I went to a school that was even outside of Rockmart. So I didn't have a lot of people around my house to play with other than my brother. So I would make up stories just, you know, just to play with him and because I was bored and I would write stories and, and draw the little you know, pictures for them. And, and, uh, when I got into high school, as soon as we got the internet, it was like game over. Now I can talk to other people who want to make up stories. <laughs> so 
So then I started talking with other people of like, let's do, you know, kind of a, I guess we were doing the social quarantine role playing before it was cool, simply because we lived so far away. And I still have a friend that uh, I talk to her all the time. She's a friend I have in Texas that I've known for like more than half my life of us just like role playing together uh, back then. And eventually I thought, you know what I could do? I make up stories all the time. Why don't, why don't I try and like write something for myself? And I think at that point I turned a corner of like, maybe I can role play by myself. <laughs> so I initially it started as like a way to fill time. And, and I, I ended up really enjoying what writing, like it felt good to write. And it, it became kind of a, a psychological a journey in a way of of catharsis in writing and and I got addicted to it. So I I have been writing seriously since 18, 19, something like that. Okay. I don't know if you have any like official formal writing education or anything, but I did see that back in 2016 you attended the Odyssey writing workshop. So what was that like? Yes. Yeah, so I went to college for graphic design, dropped out of art school. <laughs> Then I went back to school, but for like a business writing degree that I kind of used to thinly veil the fact that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, but I knew I needed a day job. Like I couldn't just be like, I'm going to write a novel and, and get paid that way. So I did a lot of uh, online writing and graphic design. And I have, you know, a degree that's like, also, she took creative writing. I'm like, okay, cool. So no, <laughs> no super, nothing super formal, but uh, a little bit. I wrote two novels after that, and I was trying to get one of them published. Like I was querying with uh, the one that I had, the, the second one that I had written, and it was getting nowhere. And I was thinking, you know, I'm just hitting these walls. So there's got to be something about my writing that's not like grabbing people. But I don't know the basic building blocks, so I'm not sure where I'm going wrong. I first came across it at Clarion. I had a friend uh, named Gabby who went to a Clarion and, and she suggested I check out the Clarion writing workshop. And from Clarion, I saw that, you know, Odyssey was a writing workshop and I ended up falling down this rabbit hole of writing workshops. Well, one of the authors that I had read, Megan Spooner, was coming to teach to Odyssey. So I thought, um, and I had met her at a Dragon Con before. I was like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and go to this one. So I'm going to apply, but like, if I don't get a scholarship, you know, I can't afford to go. I still have to work. I don't have like a lot of expendable income. So we're just going to see where it goes. And I ended up getting a scholarship to go to Odyssey, luckily. And I went there and it was like life-changing. I know a lot of people are, will probably think that's hilarious, but, uh, that a writing workshop can be life-changing, but it not only gave me like the ability to kind of see the building blocks of my writing that I needed to change. It is also the place where I found like uh, my beta reader group that I use. Um, I wrote the, the short story that became the first sister at Odyssey Writing Workshop. And I also met my partner at Odyssey Writing Workshop. And now I live in Madrid with him. So <laughs> Odyssey Writing Workshop was an insane six weeks of having my life broken down and then rebuilt back up into the craziest change one could possibly imagine. Yeah, that uh, definitely, I think, qualifies as life-changing. Yeah. 
And I, I was noticing when I was reading through the first sister that you have these chapter epigraphs at the beginning of each chapter. And I definitely noticed, I think one of your fellow Odyssey writing workshop partners uh, showed up there. So I saw one was attributed to a Rebecca Val Kuang. Yes. So um, Rebecca Kuang, who wrote The Poppy War, was in my uh, writing workshop at Odyssey. Also, Farah Nasrishi, who has written uh, Hope You Get This Message, was in my writing group. And then um, Joshua Johnson has a book coming out uh, next year called The Forever Sea. And he was in my writing, uh, Odyssey writing workshop as well. And I've given them all shout outs and, uh, and Several other students are kind of hidden in there as well. Uh, and eventually, like, you know, someday they're going to be like, oh, look at this author who's published a book. And I hope they go back to First Sister and be like, whoa, they're already in there. <laughs> so, yeah, all yeah, my, that's fellow, really cool. my fellow, fellow beta readers and uh, students there, I, I tried to give them a little shout out for helping me get this far. <laughs> Uh, well, so I was reading your guest post on the Speculative Chic site, and you mentioned that all of your novel ideas now start out as short stories. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, definitely. So when I first had the idea for The First Sister, so I have this Google Doc that's just filled with like one-line ideas, and it can be anywhere from like, a cat is friends with a crow. And it's like, that's like a very vague idea past Linden. Why did you write that down? But it's all stuff like really not even a full sentence. And I had several things. One was like priestesses who can't talk. And one was like a religion about plants. And so several times I take ideas that I'm like, well, these two were related to religion. What if I tried to combine them? And eventually make my way into something that I'm like, this is very interesting. Let's try and write something about that. So I needed to write a short story for Odyssey. We had this kind of ongoing joke about writing sexy characters named Ren in, <laughs> in Odyssey Writing Workshop. So this is how Captain Ren came to have her name. Uh, and I decided to try and just write this short story with these few ideas from my Google document that I liked. And it was, you know, it was less than 6,000 words and it was a very kind of basic she falls in love with the captain, but then, you know, someone finds her writing with the captain and, and, and it could ruin her life, but then things are, you know, they wind up fine. And it's a happy ever after romance, which is not the book. Yeah, not, not quite. I think you changed a couple of details. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> like, there were not even really any other named characters. I mean, the spaceship, it's, it's pretty much only in that spaceship. You only get to see like two locations or something. There's not, I mean, you, you are mentioned, there's another side of the war mentioned, but you never even like hear the name or, you know, you don't, you just know that these people are like on a spaceship and that's it. And the reason it was named the Juno uh, was because at the time of writing it, NASA had launched a satellite called the Juno that was going to take pictures of Jupiter. And I was like, oh, I like that name. So <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just kind of snatched it. So um, as writers do. Uh, so once I've kind of decided, and, and N.K. Jemison actually gave us this advice. She was a, a teacher at the Odyssey Writing Workshop of 2016, that if you can write a short story and are still interested in the world and the characters, you could probably turn it into a novel. But if you write a short story and you're like, God, I hate these characters. God, I hate this world. God, I can't stand working with them. 
you're going to have a really bad time <laughs> writing a novel with characters you have to like pull teeth to get them on the page. Uh, so that's, I, I definitely took a, a, you know, page from her book when it comes to uh, writing a short story beforehand. I think it works. I think it works. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I think Jemison is probably a very good person to be giving that advice just because, one, she's incredible, and two, The City We Became, her latest book, came from a short story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I feel really, like, a fangirlish lucky that she gave us, um, before, what was this, The City Born Great uh, was the short yeah. story? Yep. She let us read it before it got published at Odyssey. And that's kind of when she was talking about, you know, this is the short story. I might turn it into a novel one day. So. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it was super cool. I was like, you know, and of course I was like, um, will you sign my novels, please? Um, <laughs> you know? and, and she's super, super nice. Like, you know, she was like, of course. And gave us great advice on writing and, and world building. And uh, it was it was it was awesome. We had a lot of great teachers. I, I feel very lucky to have gone and learned so much, including the wizard Jean Cavellos, who is the one who's been writing or, or running the Odyssey workshop for I don't even know how long it's been over a decade. <laughs> but she's like a wizard. She's like Gandalf of writing. <laughs> that's that's an incredible title to have. Yeah, and everybody who's gone to the writing workshop, like if you if you tell them. Like, who is the Gandalf of writing? They're all going to say, like, Gene Cavellos. Like, everyone knows. <laughs> everyone knows. <laughs> uh, well, so we've sort of hinted at it with talking about the short story, but what's your pitch for The First Sister? Uh, my pitch is let me connect you with my agent. Um, no, so my... <laughs> I'm apparently really bad at explaining plots. Um, so says my partner, where I like to spoil people. So I'm going to try and do this as as he would do it. Um, my first idea was kind of a Spartan military society meets a Athena scientific society, but in space and they go to war. And then it became with the priestess sort of thing. I was very inspired by the handmaid's tale. So it became kind of a handmaid's tale meets red rising, uh, in this kind of sneaky spy, chasing people down, got to assassinate things, explosions in space. As I said, I'm very bad at pitching things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem spoilery, though. Yeah, I'm trying very hard not to be spoilery. <laughs> so I worked on that, at least. Uh, so that's the big pitch of it, is uh, Handmaid's Tale meets Red Rising in space. Handmaid's Tale in yeah. space with Red Rising. What is the other one? That oh, and some ancillary justice. Because somebody, somebody said something about, oh, yeah, it's very ancillary justice. And I was like, I'm very flattered that someone can, someone <laughs> said that. So I'm going to take it and continue saying it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I've seen lots of people making all of these comparisons, all three of those. And just how does it feel to have such amazing comp titles for the first sister? Really insane and really good. Uh, writing the book, I definitely thought of it as like Handmaid's Tale in Space. And so when I was querying with the book, I was like, God, you know, you're not supposed to like pick the big, the biggest apples from the tree. You're supposed to kind of come at it humble or whatever, you know, like, but I didn't know what else to comp. I was like, eh, I mean, I don't know any other 
Handmade Taily, and, and now we're getting more of them with the TV show. More people are saying, "Oh, this is Handmaid's Tale, this and Handmaid's Tale that." And uh, so I, uh, I very much wanted to, and I, and I love Margaret Atwood. So I, I, I just kind of shot myself in, uh, well, not in the foot because it actually worked out. But I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna say it's Red Rising versus Handmaid's Tale, and if nobody bites, then I'll, I'll take a look at the comps um, on my query letter, and we'll see how it goes. And my agent loved it and also said, I mean, those are some very big fish, but I have no idea what else to pitch them as. Like, I, I can't think like from an agent perspective, that's the ones I'm going to use too. And so she, we went to, to different publishing houses pitching it that way. And it's kind of stuck. Everybody is like, you know what? There's no other comps that would work. <laughs> so, but it's very flattering for people to go, yeah. It, it holds up like, you know, you'll see it on, on book covers. Oh, it's this and this. And you're thinking, yeah, it's not going to be that. But when people read the first sister and say, yeah, I agree. It's very red rising or yeah, I agree. It's very handmaid's tale in space. I, I'm just in the corner. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just feeling good about those choices. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I might've misread this, but I think, so do you have the same editor that red rising has? Uh, so for red rising, golden sun, and oh what was the third one morning star morning star yeah i always want to call it blue morning because the cover is blue and there's like red golden yeah so i always get confused about the title and and i actually think the spanish uh title is blue morning translated but um so my brain is like gets funky on the third title um i have the same editor from those i think pierce has a different editor for the latest trilogy in the same world. But I do have the same editor, uh, Michael Braff. He's gone to Skybound, who is who I'm publishing with. Um, and he's been working with me on The First Sister. And it's awesome. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Uh, so I, I did read in another interview that you were saying, again, both The Handmaid's Tale, but then also the Me Too movement were inspirations for your book. So how did those two things influence First Sister? So I think the Me Too movement popping up really, uh, I mean, it affected me in a way as someone who's been a a sexual abuse survivor and seeing other people, you know, just seeing so many people come out and say, yeah, Me Too. It's it's humbling in a way and and terrifying in another way to see so many people who have had to deal with it like I have. So when it came time for my writing and you know, it, it was, why do you want to make a priestess who can't speak? Why do you want to make a priestess who's nameless? It, it wasn't just for like kind of a torture porn aspect, which there are, there are books where, you know, torture porn, it totally is that. And I'll read them and I can enjoy some of them and not others. But it was very intentional to make, you know, a priestess who can't speak and who doesn't have a name because so many sexual victims are nameless or, you know, voiceless. They don't have anybody who's willing to listen to them. Or as soon as they speak, they're forgotten in a crowd. They don't have the followers that, you know, the big stories get to break. And so they kind of suffer quietly and in silence. And uh, I, I don't know, I just found a very deep thought provoking kind of moment of this is the Me Too movement uh, in a person and at the same time, seeing so many other kind of women shit on like, oh, you know, 
she did she's lying i don't believe her where's the evidence seeing so many women attack the other people who were coming forward with stories i'm like wow that's very backstabby you know you you might have also you might also face this in your life you just you never know that this that's ended up being where the uh the aunts of the sisterhood came from like the betrayal of your fellow sisters to having you in the back mm. um through the Me Too movement and also voting for Trump. How dare they? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, I mean, unfortunately, timely that yet again, I guess this, uh, well, unfortunately, it's probably a bad word, but yet again, this is timely given that there's kind of another Me Too movement in the entertainment industry yeah. at the moment. Yeah, it did seem that way. I, it's it's unfortunate, um, but I've also gotten to kind of use it as a time to get on a soapbox and say, look at all these people who we've held up in the writing community for so long and they are terrible people. Um, and I'm glad that like it's it's been gaining such traction that you know, people don't have to be super afraid of speaking out anymore. At least I, I hope so. I'm sure that there are still plenty of people who are afraid, but I, I, I hope that they think that the writing industry at least is getting its shit together. And we've seen, you know, publishing companies say we're done with this person. And we've seen agents say I'm done with this person, or it seems to be turning things for good. And I hope we continue with that, uh, you know, that uphill battle and we continue to kind of make the writing the writing world a safer place for uh the people who are you know on the on the shit end of this you know women women of color sexual minorities gender minorities uh that sort of thing i'm I'm hopeful that the writing industry just keeps getting better and better yeah, me too. Even if uh, sometimes it feels like one step forward, two steps back, as a, a certain recent awards ceremony kind of highlighted. Yeah, Hugo. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, you know, I'll just say everyone should go and see Rebecca Kwong's uh, Hugo expects uh, except well astounding award acceptance speech that she has put up on her uh, Twitter. Uh, I feel like she can say it far better than I ever could. <laughs> Yeah, that that was an excellent speech. Yeah, very powerful and to the point and awesome. Well, so back to First Sister, you've created this vast world, really more like this vast universe. Uh, So how do you narrow all of that world building down to pick just three viewpoint characters to tell the story you want to tell? So when I was initially writing The First Sister, I, I didn't know what novel I wanted to write. So I had a couple of ideas. The first was... I had this idea about these two dudes going on like a bro adventure and one's name was Aster and one's name was Ringer and they were connected, which is totally not how things have wound up in the book. And they go on like this adventure through the solar system and they're like connected mentally. So that was a tiny idea that I had written like a a short story for. And then I had the first sister that I had written a short story for at Odyssey. And I was thinking, how can I turn this into a novel? How can I turn this into a novel? And one day I was jogging and just kind of had this moment where I almost stumbled over a tree limb because I was like, holy shit, it's the same story. It's not, I'm not thinking of two different novels. I'm thinking of the two different sides of the war. And that was kind of my voila moment. And I had to like turn around and run back home (laughs) to quickly write down my idea because I was uh, totally not close to my house at that point jogging. And I, I, you know, from there, it just became a, a very natural consequence of, you know, I wrote this short story, 
and this short story, and now I can use them in the same world and kind of build up what I don't have to fix the things that I already do. And I did have to do a lot of that because I'm, I'm a person who could be like, let's put these two characters in a white room and I don't care if anything's described. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what, what the room looks like. I just want them to talk. And of course, everyone who's reading the book is like, what the fuck? Where are they? What is happening? <laughs> Who are these people? And I'm like, I don't care. I, I just want to write their dialogue. I want, their, I want to write them fighting. That's awesome. So yeah, I have to kind of temper what I like to do with what I find hard to do. So let's put them in a room and describe the room and, and then they can fight in the room. Um, and and how, how do they live on these planets? I don't know. Magic. And of course... My, my, my partner who I met at Odyssey Writing Workshop is like, that's not an answer. We need real concrete science and world building. And I'm like, okay, so they have like a made up thing that allows them to do this. He's like, yeah, well, I'm going to talk to an astrophysicist so that we can make sure this made up thing is hypothetically even correct. And I'm like, but it's made up. It's magic. Why can't we just have magic? So yeah, I'm, I'm more the one who's like focused on characters and emotional beats and plot twists. And I think my partner uh, keeps me humble, keeps me focused on the little details that make the world feel really believable, especially since we have an astrophysicist friend who is like, well, if you found a new ceramic element that could keep uh, energy, uh, the solar energy so close to the sun with no loss whatsoever of transfer, I'm like, I don't understand half the words coming out of your mouth, but thank you for helping me. And uh, if I need you again, I'll let you read what I write so that I don't sound like an idiot. Yeah. And I feel like especially in science fiction, though, that like element X or whatever the trope is called is yeah. a very common thing. Uh, it so is, it's just like yeah. sort of take this one thing for granted and then everything else works out. Yeah. And I, to a point, I do that. And then to another point, I also wanted to explain it a bit so that you're not like, oh, element X. But I mean, I do, I do have Hermium, but I hope that Hermium sounds hypothetically okay. The astrophysicists seem to think, you know, if we found this ceramic element and if we, and I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, we're, we're going to go with that. Hey, if it works for an astrophysicist, it works for me. Yeah, I don't understand the periodic table, but go for it. Yeah, I believe you. <laughs> you make rockets and stuff. I don't know. Uh, I will say that, I mean, you did obviously go back and add in a lot more descriptive detail, but I, I appreciated kind of what felt like that natural tendency to not overly describe the surroundings, because yeah. I know for me at least, like, I have some degree of aphantasia when I'm reading, and just having, like, the three sisters or whatever that we see a lot on this ship be like, oh, this is the auburn-haired one. I'm like, okay, one detail, I can lock onto that. But if you describe everything, I'm probably just going to remember one or two things. Yeah, that's, I'm the same way when I'm reading. I have to have like one good concrete detail to kind of connect to that character. Or I'm like, who is this? I don't remember. I don't remember. I need to take notes. So I do it as a writer to remember because I appreciate it when other writers do it. Uh, to really make the character stand out, especially when with the sisters, they don't have names. And it's like they might move up in rank and then you're like, oh, shit, she was third sister. And now she's second sister. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what's going on. Who is this person? So I tried to give like little tricks here and there to where, oh, that's the blue eyed one. Oh, that's the red haired one. So, you know, you because I appreciate it when other authors also do this. I wanted to keep going with it. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, well, are there any 
fundamental themes or messages that you hope readers take away from this story? And I know we've probably touched on that a little bit already. Uh, I very much kind of uh, agree with Margaret Atwood that once your kind of thing is out in the world, once your art is out there, what readers take away from it is is kind of their own business. Because I've put a lot of different things, uh, I think, into this book, like some of the stuff we've touched on, Me Too. Um, one of it is, you know, queerness is almost is going to be universal in the future, or that's my hope anyway. And, you know, I have a lot of different things that I've put into this book that, uh, I think everybody will focus on something different. You know, I've, I've read a review that focuses just on the colonialism and, and, uh, reviews that focus on the queerness or the romance aspect or, so I'm, I'm interested to see what everybody wants to take away. Cause it's, it's, I wrote it for me and gave it to the world. So everybody have fun figuring out <laughs> what they like about it. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot that's packed into the one story while still feeling very kind of like easily readable and very kind of like fast paced. Because I feel like sometimes you get one or the other. I don't know if I felt like I wanted to hit every theme that I was noticing in there, I'd have to have like a 10,000 word essay just to hit it all. <laughs> yeah, I had somebody message me on Twitter and was like, hey, what are the trigger warnings for this book? And I was like, that is a great question. And I need to sit down and go through chapter by chapter and figure it out because that's a long list. Um, but I, I, I'm going to put that on my website, uh, lindanalewis.com. I've, I've finally got it done. So uh, trigger warnings coming soon. <laughs> Fantastic. That's, that's something that I wish was more common in the industry to have people yeah. put those kinds of things on their website. Yeah, I want to put it on my website. So... Uh, if you want it, it's there. If you don't want it, cool. You don't have to. It's you don't have to go read it. I'm not gonna like stab you in the eyeball and be like, look at it. Um, <laughs> but if you want it, it's over there. Don't worry, I got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I guess back to the world that you created. Are there any favorite world building details that you were able to include in the story? I know uh, you seem like you really enjoy the world building aspect of things. I enjoy. I enjoy some world building. Like I said, if it was like, let's put them in a gray room and they can speak <laughs> together and wax about the stars. I would just talk about the stars all day. Um, the the points of world building I like are, are whenever I get one of my beta readers going, nice. Mainly my partner because he is so picky. He's so picky. So if I get him to read something and he's like, that's very believable world building. I'm like, yes, I've done it. I've passed the game <laughs> uh, the, let's see I have like a what I call the world building bible and uh, it's very much you, you only get that 10% of the iceberg because otherwise you're going to get bogged down and punched in the face with too much info uh, the thing that I, I really enjoyed was setting up the sisterhood and it's layers of uh, uh, like who's leading it and these are the orders and these are the symbols for the order and this is you know, what they are over with their, you know, this is how they control their tax money. And we get a little bit more of that in book two, um, because, uh, no, no, no spoilers, but the Agora kind of makes itself far more known in the second book, um, more of a problem. And I enjoyed what I got to put into that. And of course I had to temper myself with don't info dump, don't info dump every time. <laughs> so, uh, I enjoyed kind of watching a lot of, like, I have a, a, you know, a Baptist Christian kind of upbringing. So the aunts to me were very like, 
deacons and pastors and setting up this way. And then my partner has a Catholic background. So his are very much like cardinals and popes. And so we, we work together to find something that could touch on, on different religion topics uh, that kind of speaks outside of a, of a religion, but is still, you know, universally recognizable of the setup of a religion. Which right. happens to be controlling your tax money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I even just appreciated kind of on an, a lot smaller scale because uh, I kind of like stabby things. Just the rapier dagger teams. I thought that was really cool. Oh, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, that And that was uh, way back in the day when I wrote that other short story about these two dude bros going on a wacky hijinks car ride through the solar system, but like in a spaceship. The the fact that they were like connected mentally and then one of them went missing and the other one was like, I have to find my partner. That was from the like little short that I wrote that will probably never see the light of day. Uh, <laughs> it's bad um, and it's old, it's old and bad. But I, I still liked the idea of them being like technologically linked and one of them has gone missing and, and, and this big dude bro is like, I miss my partner and is going to like go moping through the solar system to find them. <laughs> that's where, that's where Lido Hero came from. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd say that's definitely one way to describe it. <laughs> Look, I love, I love Lido. He's very brooding action hero guy. Um, and Uh, I enjoy writing him because he never fights me. Like when it comes to first sister, I feel like I have to like beg her, please let me have your voice for this chapter. Please talk to me, do what I'm asking you to do. And Leto's It's hard for a voiceless character. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But she's very freaking rebellious from her writing. Like from the author point of view, she can be a pain in the ass to write. Uh, I'm like, please do this thing. And she's like, "Mm -mm, I refuse. I'm going to do this other thing. I'm like, great. You've just messed up. Plot. The entire plot that I plotted out beautifully, and you've just messed it up. Um, but it works. It works. I can I sometimes let her run wild, and and you know, it comes out for the better. But Leto is very much like, let's do this, and he's you know very focused. And yes, let's do this. <laughs> Thank you, Leto, for being the character that's going to make this book easy to write. Um, well, kind of back, sort of on the writing process side of things, I think you've said before that you don't really listen to music while actually writing but you can listen to music while you're plotting and planning so do you have uh, any songs from the first sister plotting and planning playlist you can share yeah so i have a first sister playlist on spotify that has a few songs on it i think it's like five songs and those were like the same five that i listened to over and over and over when i was plotting the book like and i just like hyper fixate on those songs because there's something about them that gives me like good ideas about certain characters. Um, like Missio's uh, Deep Blue Sea was very much my Leto song. Meg Meyer's Numb was my hero song. I, I, I don't know. I, I just have like these five songs that got me thinking, you know, <laughs> in the first sister kind of way. And I have another playlist for book two, but uh, and it's on my Spotify, but I'm not going to say the name because I feel like somebody's going to go listen to all the songs and be like, oh, you're going to do what to who? And, and they're going to know. They're going to know from my stinking playlist. But luckily, I have many playlists on Spotify. So good luck. Good luck finding it. 
Yeah. And so the last thing that I wanted to hit on with the first sister is uh, you mentioned that you had graphic design experience. And I think you were actually able to apply some of that to the book. Yeah. So when I first sent the book to my agent and editor and we sold it, it was only first sister and Lido's point of view. And then the publishing house came back and said, we really, really want to get something from Hero because Hero's point of view is going to be essential in tying these two together. I said, okay, all right, I could probably do that, but I'm not going to do it like I did the other ones. I'm going to do, and it was written probably a year after the other two. So I had Leto and First Sister pretty much done, and then I was going to connect them with Hero. And so I wrote them a year later and I wanted them, so I kind of introduced the idea of like, what would Hero try and explain to the person they left behind? And that became the recordings that Hero sends Leto. And when I started doing these recordings, I didn't want to head the chapters the same way. I wanted them to be visually different. And so I created this little play button in in Photoshop and just stuck it into my rough draft document, thinking, you know, like, oh, eventually we'll get something else going on. And, and, and you know, there's professional team somewhere. And, if, and they just li- they loved it. They were like, yeah, great, cool. And, and so it's the same thing that I made in like five seconds in Photoshop has made it into the final <laughs> book. Uh, and I, I, I have to, I'm so thankful for my Skybound team. I am thankful for everybody from the, the top brass to the bottom interns, however. And I apologize for my graphic design pickiness. I know, I, I feel so like... I've had people ask, oh, how much input did you have on the book cover? And I just got to kind of look at the book cover and go, sweet, love it. And then I got the interior pages and I was like, no, 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 this typeface is all wrong. And look at this kerning <laughs> here. No, I don't like that page break at all. And they're, I'm, I know they were like, Jesus Christ, we should never have asked her opinion. <laughs> um, because I just went graphic design hog wild. And so I edited like a page to the way I wanted it. And they were just like, all right, we'll do it this way. You've already kind of given us exactly what you like. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm very thankful that they humored me with that. So it looks exactly like I want it to look on the inside. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, and I guess one last thing that I had about, so Hero's little segments between the other viewpoint chapters. I love that, so it's audio recordings. I love that you have like the sound effects and everything that are going on in the background. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, uh, I'm speaking it exactly as I would have written it down. So I thought that was really cool. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to do it differently from Leto and First Sisters. Whereas if they were telling you a story, Hero's talking to Leto and that's it. Like you might, as the reader, you're always kind of a voyeur on these people's lives. But with Hero, it was very much like, this isn't meant for you. You just happen to be able to read it. And, uh, you know, actually, that gives me a really good idea. And I'm going to write a note down. But... (laughs) 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 this is what happens i will kind of talk about something and then my brain connects it's like lighting up like a christmas tree (laughs) yeah inspiration everywhere yeah for sure i feel like my brain is a bunch of lego pieces and i'm slowly putting it together yeah i i feel that um especially recently yeah especially in this quarantine world my brain is a bunch of lego uh, well, so 
Moving on from the first sister for a little bit, I saw you do have a short story in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, issue 215, called Where She Went. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. So that was my first professional publication. Uh, I wrote it right after I came out of Odyssey Writing Workshop. The Scott over Beneath Ceaseless Skies is an Odyssey alumni, and he came to talk at Odyssey Writing Workshop of 2016. And during his talk about setting up short stories and how to grab attention and first lines, I started with the first line of where she went, and it just kind of evolved into this very weird space western with this old guy who was looking for his granddaughter who'd gone missing. and. I, you know, jokingly mentioned to Scott, like, hey, I wrote the first line of a story that I'm going to send to you when it's done. And he was like, you should like, really, you should think about it. Uh, Because I'm I focus more on novels than short stories. Uh, Of course, Odyssey is like, no, short stories, we will learn with them. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to write it and see how it goes. Maybe Scott will take me up on that offer. Um, And so I just kind of wrote it in this depression haze. Like, I think that's probably the most depressed I've been when writing was when I wrote where she went and uh, I sent it to Scott and I was like, yo, I'm sorry, this is pretty depressing. So uh, here you go. And he was like, yep, I'll buy it. Like almost to me (laughs) (laughs) work on it, but yeah, I'll buy it. And it it kind of came very naturally and quickly, uh, especially after uh, Odyssey. And I, I've tried to write a couple more short stories to sell since then and haven't found uh, the tone that I like or the voice that I like. Uh, and I still have some that are sitting around. Maybe one day I'll try and polish them up and sell them because uh, it's enjoyable work writing a short story and then being able to walk away from those characters and be like, all right, now you can be quiet. Uh, yeah. I imagine it's fun to just be like, hey, I'm going to write a space western slash like lone man on a mission that's kind of sci-fi, but you know, there's harpies and sirens. Yeah, I I quite enjoy and I feel like you might get this point from the first sister too. this this kind of science that's almost magical. This blurring of where is the line between science and magic? Like if if we're connected mentally and I can feel my partner's emotions, is this is this science or some sort of magical like twinning connection sort of thing. Um, I, I don't know. I, I find a lot of fun uh, playground in that. It's, and and I, I think more people are going to see that as we learn more about the synthetics in uh, book two and book three, that they're, once science becomes so cutting edge to us in our 2020 world, it's going to look like magic to us because we can't even fathom how these things work. I don't know. I find it a very interesting, like I said, a playground, a play, a really fun place to play. Uh, the synthetics were those, the AI. Yeah. Those are the AI that have locked uh, humanity into the first floor, first four planets because they're in naughty timeout time. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say good. Cause I want to hear more about them because I loved that. They're like, yeah, there's like a centuries long war between humanity. And then the AI collectively said, Nope, y'all are being dumb. Like, <laughs> Time out. We're leaving. <laughs> yeah. If if the first sister does well, because I've sold the trilogy, I have a book. And it might be one or two. I don't know, because uh, I haven't gotten it fully planned that I would love to write in the dead century war when the AIs were like, fuck this, we're out. Like, I really want to write that. 
So, you know, a first sister does really well. Skybound can just, this is for you, Skybound. I'm letting you know I'll keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess uh, just outside of your books, are there any other books that you've enjoyed lately and you can recommend? Oh my gosh, so many. Um, I got to read in advance of Rebecca Kwong's The Burning God. And I'm so jealous. It is so good. It's so good. Also, like, I had to, like, mad text her, like, crying, like, how dare you do this to me? (laughs) I think I saw her tweet pretty proud about that. (laughs) Yeah, she did. Yeah, I was definitely, she was like, oh, you're the first person who's not on my reading team who finished it. She, like, she gave it to me, and, like, two days later, I was like, what have you done? Um, Like, I didn't do anything. I should have been, like, writing. And I was, like, just reading her book. Um, let me see. I'm trying to, I have, uh, several other books that I want to recommend. Oh, The Year of the Witching by Alexis Henderson. It's super spooky and super good and super cool. It's, uh, it's like a horror, I don't know, horror fantasy. There are witches in this sort of pilgrimy-ish world and it's awesome. And I'm going to go live in the forest with the terrible witches because I love them. Um, <laughs> Mexican Gothic. I've been reading a lot of horror lately, I guess, by Silvia Moreno Garcia. Uh, loved it. The Space Between Worlds by Micaiah Johnson. Uh, that's actually coming out August 4th, same day as The First Sister. So if you happen to be going out to get The First Sister, check The Space Between Worlds out. I'm usually not super into like portal fantasies of, oh, she's popping into like another world. And this one was so well done. It just got me. It was like multiple art alternate realities with a traveler between worlds and Mad Max. (laughs) And you think, ah, that's, that's weird, but she does it so well. It's so good. And you say you're not good at pitching books. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I I'm trying not to spoil people on these books. I'm hoping they come out as just excited instead of spoilery. Uh, so those are just a few that I've enjoyed this year, uh, along with, I don't know, I've read a lot of books in quarantine. So I've I've gone through like 50 books, but those are the ones that stand out to me at this moment. Yeah, I think I saw uh, in the Skybound Expo video you were in a couple weeks ago, you were saying that you've been reading a lot of pandemic books recently. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of pandemic books. Uh, I read uh, Chuck Wendig's Wanderers books just because I was like, uh, and then the, the, mid, the Midwife's Tale, is that? Tale of the Midwife. Um, I don't know. As soon as I, like some people avoid the pandemic books like the plague. <laughs> um, because they're, you know, they're very like, oh, I've had this in my daily life. I'm tired of it. But I've always been the type of person who likes to fictionalize some of the trouble that they're going through, whether it's me writing it or me reading it. And I'm not, I don't feel like I want to, to write a pandemic story. Um, I have a friend who works for the CDC, so I feel like the glamour has been lost because <laughs> I know what goes on behind closed doors. <laughs> uh, and the answer is chaos, pure chaos. But I've, I've really been enjoying reading them as kind of a catharsis of like, well, if these fictional people can deal with these terrible scenarios and zombie apocalypses, I too can <laughs> deal with these terrible problems of living inside and wearing a mask which seems very easy by comparison. Yeah. 
Um, well, uh, what's next for you? Any current or future projects you can talk about? Whew. Uh, I finished, well, I haven't finished it. I've turned in my draft of the second book and I finished the outline of book three. So I'm going to be digging into writing that starting tomorrow. And I have kind of a Spanish fantasy on the back burners. Uh, when I moved to Spain, I, I wanted to read up on this place and the history, like give me a Spanish history course. But in the process of that, I ended up finding Spanish mythology and some of the monsters that Spain has. And I'm just, I just am floored and fascinated by all these amazing monsters that I feel like need to be brought to the U.S. <laughs> yes, please. Support some monsters. Uh, so I have like a Spanish-inspired fantasy world of what happens if if Spain just had magic? How would it develop? It has magic and all these monsters running around. What would it look like? I really want to write that one after this. Of course, I, I also would love to write the the Dead Century War robot books. So you know, Skybound, get at me. Um, <laughs> but if that if if that doesn't go for anybody, uh, I'm happy to write my Spanish fantasy. And then uh, one way I like to close out these episodes are, what's just something you're excited about right now? Something I'm excited about. I'm really looking forward to uh, Vampire Bloodlines 2, the video game, um, which is the first thing that popped into my head. So that's what I'm going to say. I really want, or or uh, even the cyberpunk video game. I just, I, I want to play a good video game right now. I'm really looking forward to good video game time. <laughs> Yeah, that, that sounds very enjoyable. Lyndon, I'm so glad you were able to come on the podcast. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you for having me. You can find Lyndon A. Lewis on Twitter and Instagram as Lyndon A. Lewis or at their website, lyndonalewis.com. The first sister blew me away when I read it. It quickly went from a story I'd heard pretty much nothing about to one of my absolute favorite reads of the year. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We're close to hitting the milestone where we'll release our very first bonus episode. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.